My dad had one pair of shoes that he found in about 1933, someplace here in Chicago. <laughs> and he decided those shoes were very comfortable. <laughs> so to the end of his life, he had those same shoes. Somewhere when he was in his beginning 80s, he knew the company was going to go out of business. <laughs> so he bought about four extra pairs, and he had those same shoes all those years. That's the kind of guy he was. He saved things. He was so meticulous, contrary to the closet. On WENR, we worked on farm programs, and we did old rural people. Then we did another show called The Smith Family, in which other people were involved, and Marion did the Irish voice on that, which later became Molly. We ran into a man on the farm program called E.W. Rusk, and he uh, had known about a little store down in Columbia, Missouri, where an old guy that ran this store didn't have anything, and he had everything. If he didn't have it, he'd say, well, I'm smack out of that. I'll have it in the morning. So this man told us this story, and we thought this would be a good idea, so we put it together, made a deal with Don Quinn to write it. The idea that you hired a writer, you kept that quiet. You didn't let anybody, I suppose that's you didn't right, let anybody sure. know that, or that's you wouldn't right. be out of work quick. <laughs> so he started writing Smack Out, and then NBC bought this radio station, and we didn't want to go to NBC because we were playing theaters and doing pretty well because our appearances were announced on the radio station, mm -hmm, and NBC sure. wouldn't allow that. So we went over across the river to a Columbia station, WMAQ in Chicago, started this show actually over there, and we were only there six months when that station was sold to NBC. So, <laughs> so then we had to go to NBC. That was 1931 that that mm -hmm. happened. This was still Smack Out, though. That was still Smack Out. Mm -hmm. And we did that show for four years before anything happened. And we heard about the Johnson Company through an outside source. They were looking for something. They wanted to hear us because Mrs. Lewis, and married to Jack Lewis, who was the head of the advertising agency, mm -hmm. Needham Lewis and Brewery, she would listen to Smack Out for about six months. And she knew all about us, and she got her husband to listen. And he got interested, and he wanted to buy us, but they didn't want NBC to know that they wanted to buy us, you see? Yeah. Because otherwise, whoop, goes the That's right, up goes, goes the, the price. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. And we actually went over to another studio over in the other end of town and sneaked an audition for the Johnson Company. And we put the Molly voice, who was Marion's voice, Irish voice, that she had been doing in the Smith family, put them all together and did this audition, and Don wrote it, and they bought it. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 103. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, we head to Wistful Vista to spend a weekend with Fibber McGee and Molly at the local malt shop. Between 1938 and 50, Jim and Marion Jordan's comedy never finished lower than fifth in the national radio ratings. Tonight, we'll focus on the period after, when the show became a closed production and aired for 15 minutes, five days per week. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series, 
on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme is Gordon Jenkins' version of Caravan, a fitting song for the life and times of radio's most famous comedy couple in the 1950s. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. going. As long as you're breathing, you keep going. Even when it looks like there's no way out, you hang on by your toenails. We poked up and down those black valley streets that twist and turn and sometimes wind up in dead ends. Ellie stopped crying after a while. She slumped down with her head rolling on the seat back, limp as a rag doll with the stuffing leaked out. It took a long time, but it had to come to an end. I saw the bulk of the house looming up. There was light sneaking around the edges of the blinds up in Annie's room. She wasn't asleep after all. She'd be sitting up in bed, maybe plastering red stuff on her fingers and dreaming about the date with Mike. By February 3rd, 1949, when Jim and Marion Jordan appeared in Suspense's backseat driver, they'd been radio's most popular couple for a decade. When Anton M. Leader took over the production of Suspense, he continued Bill Spears' method of casting non-traditional roles. It was the first time the Jordans had appeared on the program. I pulled up to the concrete walk I'd poured with my own hands before there was any Annie or Bud, and I cut the lights. In a second or two, my eyes got used to the dark. I could make out the high hedge Ellie planted around the place and the roof rising up beyond it. Out, missus. Face the house. Now you, Max, slide out the same side, stand beside her. Walk to the door, slow and no funny business. I'm right behind you. Ellie, mm-hmm. Ellie, honey, you all right? All right, indeed. Smack flat on my face on a concrete walk and you falling on me. <laughs> Nothing wrong with her. <laughs> That's my girl. Oh, well, don't just stand there. Help me up. Here you are. Oh, I've got to get in the house before the kids come busting out here. I won't have them mixed up in this. Well, how's he doing, boys? Got him through the gun hand on the right shoulder. See? <laughs> a lucky shot, copper. If you weren't lucky, you'd all be cold meat now. Maybe. Matrick, isn't it, Uncle Joe? That's him. Miranda described him to you, eh? The old girl didn't miss a trick. <laughs> she even knew you were taking the back way home. You left a clear trail, Uncle Joe. Slick work. I had to get him out of the car before the fireworks started. Ellie didn't stand a chance. She helped, though. Ellie catches on quick. How bad. 
A mean guy like Matrick. Make him think you don't want to do something, and he'll break his neck doing it. I let on I was trying to run out of gas. That got us to Bill's. Then we both made out there was no sense going to Miranda's, so we got bullied into going to Miranda's. It was a thousand to one. She'd run off at the mouth about the brush fires and scare him into hiding out. After that, all Ellie had to do was turn on the hysterics. He was dead set on coming here. <laughs> Bright boy, like I said. Bright enough. You did all right, too, Mike. I was watching the rearview mirror all the time you were tailing us. But you never showed. You knew I was there, though. When one officer starts double-talking another officer, he wants to know why. <laughs> officer, double-talk. You never said a thing to him except that I'd bought some place out here. Yeah, the Charles place. Poor old man Charles. <laughs> In a tough spot and moving out for good. Well, what's wrong with that? Matrick, didn't anybody ever tell you it wasn't smart to take up with strangers? Maybe I'd better introduce myself. The name's Charles. Joe Charles. Detective. Homicide. Tonight I was off duty and was just taking my wife to a movie. Fibber McGee and Molly debuted in April of 1935 on NBC's Blue Network. The show was broadcast briefly from New York before moving to Chicago. We did four shows in New York, and then we went to Chicago. Uh-huh. Did you do the earlier series, Smackout in Chicago? Yes, that was from Chicago. They moved to Hollywood in 1939. Two years later, they were radio's highest-rated program. The Donson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn, with songs by Martha Tilton and the King's Men, and music by Billy Mills. The show opens with Don't Ever Leave Me. We have just received this message for our listeners in a telegram from the president of S.C. Johnson & Son, Incorporated, our sponsor. In these serious days, there can be no division of opinion. The United States is at war. We are all ready and eager to do our part. The makers of Johnson's Wax and Glowcoat believe it is in the public interest to continue programs as entertaining as Fibber McGee and Molly. They have a place in national morale. So you can continue to hear Fibber McGee and Molly and still be in touch with latest developments. We have asked the National Broadcasting Company to feel free at any time to cut into our programs with important news flashes and announcements. Signed, H.F. Johnson, Jr. Well, there's an old saying to the effect that the female is more deadly than the male. But around the first of the month, the mail can be pretty deadly, too. And here at 79 Whisper Vista, the bookman has just left a stack of, which on the breakfast table reaches halfway up the coffee pot. And it's all for Fibber McGee and Molly. Heavenly days, McGee. Look at these bills. You look at them. I got a letter from my cousin, Ick. 
Dick. Yeah, you know. Ichabod McGee. Oh, sure. Hmm? He was the black sheep of your family, wasn't he? Yeah, complete no good. Ran away when he was 16. Oh? Bummed around the country and started gambling. Won a few hundred bucks and squandered the whole roll on a few acres of scrub farmland and then carelessly discovered oil on it. <laughs> Worthless little pup is now worth four million bucks. Your own brother? Unfortunately, he ain't my own brother anymore. We disowned him in 1926. No, before he discovered the oil, no doubt. <laughs> well, what's he say in his letter? He says, Dear Brother Fibber, <laughs> signed Ick, the black sheep. <laughs> I guess Ick ain't in any mood to make up. Well, I for one won't chase after him just because he has money. No, me either. Wonder how I could get him to chase after me. <laughs> Hey, what's this postcard? Well, how should I know? It's addressed to you, and I never read your mail. Uh, anyway, it's just an advertisement. Hey, it isn't either just an advertisement. It's from the Wistful Vista Wholesale Outlet Store. It says, You have been recommended and selected as one of a small list of patrons to whom we extend the privilege of purchasing standard merchandise at a 40% discount. Oh, boy. This card will be your identification, not transferable. Yours very truly, signed... Paul, your pal, Peters. Oh. Say, I didn't know you had a Paul named Pal Peters. Who is he? And why should he give you 40% discount on anything? Oh, they just do that for a few prominent citizens. For the goodwill. You see, Molly, if they... Oh, come in. Hi, babe. Hello, Skimp. Hello, Mr. Mill. Hi, Billy. What's troubling your pretty little bald head today? <laughs> you know anything about radio, Skimp? Who, me? I'll say I do. Why, sure he does, Mr. Mill. He fixed ours yesterday. Yeah. Now all we have to do to get KPMO is turn the dial to WTL and kick it three times. <laughs> Writer Don Quinn was one of the men responsible for the success. So I work very closely with the production. I see the script all the way through, editing every word, inserting a great deal of my own work. Then I attend every rehearsal and every broadcast. I can get you a radio wholesale, Billy. Forty percent off. How much you want to sink into it? Oh, this to me is one of the writer's obligations because if anything should happen, if an emergency should arise at the last minute, the writer must be there to be make corrections and changes. If an actor has an accident on the way to the studio, this leaves a very embarrassing gap in his script. So I think it's part of a writer's duty to follow through the actual broadcast. Hey, wait a minute, Skimp. How come you get 40% off on radios? What do you mean on radios? I get 40% off on anything. I got connections. I know people in the right places. Oh, I sure. Don't you forget, Mr. Mills McGee is a prominent citizen. You betcha. Stand up, dearie, and show Billy how prominent you really are. <laughs> well, I'm certainly obliged, Skimp. Want the 30 frog skins now? No, no. Wait till you get the radio. Uh, will you sit down and have a cup of coffee, uh, Billy? No, oh, thanks, babe. Coffee makes me sleepy. Makes you sleepy. That's funny. Keeps most people awake. Not me. I never drink it. So long. <laughs> There's a great actor lost in that guy. Yeah. And I doubt if they ever find him. <laughs> Are you going downtown to get his radio right away, McGee? Yeah, I think so. Might want to pick up a few things myself. After all, I haven't got your electric waffle iron. Ooh! I haven't got your Christmas present yet. <laughs> oh, I wonder what it's going to be. But you can get that later, McGee. I'll go with you today so we can... Uh... Oh, dear. Come in. Oh, 
Hello, Mrs. Uppington. Oh, how do you do, my dear? And Miss McGee. Hi, Uppy. <laughs> I was just going downtown to select a new floor lamp, Mrs. McGee. Would you care to go along? Well, now... Hey, I... wait a minute, Uppy. Don't go throwing your dough away now. Let, let me handle this for you. I can get 40% off on any merchandise. Now, wait a minute, McGee. How much you want to pay for a floor lamp, Uppy? Mr. McGee, when I want something, I am not one to count the cost. Oh. With me, money is no object whatsoever. Ooh. I want the best, and I'm perfectly willing to pay for it. But if possible, try and keep it under seven dollars. <laughs> Catch on, McGee. Be as reckless as you like, as long as you're careful. Uh, what kind of a lamp do you want, Abigail? Well, my dear, I rather had in mind one with a marble and bronze base, uh-huh. a fluted gold-leaf column, mm. a cluster of five bulbs with an indirect fixture at the top, yeah. a large beige monk's cloth shade, perhaps surmounted by a small jade ornament. Yeah. <laughs> You had that in mind for seven bucks? Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. Would you go to eight fifty if it had Melvin Douglas shinning up the post to turn it on for you? <laughs> Phil Leslie joined the team in 1943. Don had been the sole writer for much of the time, but in the previous couple of years before I came with him, he had had assistance. See, the show came out here in 1939, mm-hmm. out here to the coast. He'd been in Chicago before that. Don had had a couple of assistants. One of them had gone into the Army in about 43, I guess, and Don was looking for somebody else, and that is when fortune fell in my lap. <laughs> the Johnson's Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. The makers of Johnson's Wax, Johnson's Carnew, and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn, with music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. During the 1940s, the couple was part of NBC's Powerhouse Tuesday Night with Bob Hope and Red Skelton. The town of Wistful Vista became part of American folklore. You were part of a pretty strong lineup on yes, Tuesday, Tuesday night. Yes, Tuesday night was... Comedy was night, a, wasn't that's it? That's right. Bob Hope and then Phil mm. McGee. And Bob then Hope came in a little later. Red Skelton, Skelton was in there. Uh-huh. Then later, Ozzie and Harriet. And Amos and Andy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you want to see a busy place this morning, drop in at 79 Wistful Vista. Telephones ringing, people rushing in and out, the air full of big deals. Hey, where's my pencil sharpener? Here I am, dearie. (laughs) What goes on? Why, the squire has gone into business, that's all. Get a load of a big tycoon tycooning as we meet Fibber McGee and Molly. Yes, 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 I got that, Dinwiddie. 10,000 red, 20,000 white. How about green? 6,000. Okay, Dinwiddie. Yes, 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 I'll shoot the order right through. What? Certainly they're pre-war quality. Now, you start getting fussy, Dinwiddie, and we won't sell you any more stuff. Okay. Where's my order blanks? In your hand. Oh, oh, yes. My pencil. Pencil, where's my pencil? Behind your ear. Uh, uh, Which ear? Come, come, this is my busy day. Which ear? Your left ear. Oh. And don't get executive with me, dearie. I knew you when you thought a dotted line was a leopard. (laughs) He who is being Western representative for the AGB Corporation is no cinch Hey, why don't that guy from the typewriter company show up? He's waiting out in the hall now Shall I bring him in? Why, of course not What kind of a businessman would I be to see a guy the minute he arrives? Keep him waiting (laughs) 
Well, it always makes you angry to be kept waiting. Well, that's a different matter. When you're a driver, you hate pedestrians. <laughs> when you're a pedestrian, you hate drivers. That's life. <laughs> well, if that's life, I'll take the ladies' home journal. Okay. Now, look, I'm very busy today, and I don't want to be... I'll get that. Well, that's very sweet of you, considering you got the phone in your hand. Huh? Oh. Western Branch, AJB Corporation. McGee speaking. Who? Oh, yes, Conley. What? Well, wait till I get one of my employees to look that up. Hey, Molly, look in the order file and see when the shipment went out to Conley at Cleveland, Indiana. Cleveland is in Ohio. Oh, that must be where I made my mistake. (laughs) Hello, Conley. Your order was rerouted through Indiana because of shipping difficulties. (laughs) You'll get it tomorrow. Yes, yes, yes. 70,000 red and 20,000 green. Okay, Conley. Say, how about the typewriter, man? You want to see him now, or shall I put him in the spare bedroom till Thursday? How long have I kept him waiting? Hmm, ten minutes. Well, that ain't very impressive, but bring him in. Yes, Mr. McGee? And you don't have to curtsy every time you speak to me. Well, it's just a mark of respect and a tight girdle. Uh, Mr. McGee, we'll see you now, please. I'm from the Wistful Vista typewriter. Now, just a minute, my man. Mrs. McGee, did that letter come through from Secretary Morgenthau in answer to my wire? Yes, sir. He said that just as soon as the time comes, he wants you to act in an advisory capacity. What does he mean, when the time comes? What did he say exactly? Well, exactly. He said, when I want your advice, I'll ask for it. (laughs) Ah, good old Hank. It began Friday. Mm -hmm. What would you do? Would you be working with Don Quinn, going over his uh, material? Oh, we'd meet on Friday, and then we would meet again Saturday, and we would meet Sunday. That was just with us and the writers, you see. And then on Monday, the cast would come in, and we'd have a reading, and then they'd go back to work, and we'd take it on Tuesday morning again. The building of the show and everything, of course, was all done beforehand. How many uh, rehearsals would you have? Two. Was one a dress rehearsal? Yes, we'd have a dress on Tuesday about noontime. Would you have an audience for that? No. Uh, No. It wasn't necessary to gauge where the laps were going to fall and and so on. That's right. If they didn't fall, it was too bad. (laughs) They didn't always, believe me. And for uh, most of the time then, from 39 on, the show originated from the Hollywood studios. Always. I brung you a typewriter. Well, you better take it, McGee. They're pretty hard to get. Let's see it, bud. Put it up here on the desk here. Okay. Hmm. Seems to have all the letters on it. How about numbers? Hey, where's the figure one? Uh, you, uh, they always use the letter L for the figure one, mister. Oh, well, I don't want any typewriter that has to use a makeshift number like that. That's ridiculous. I want a typewriter with all the numbers from one to ten. Exclusive. They, uh... Radio ratings peaked in 1948, and the networks used excess profits to help launch TV. NBC TV programmed Milton Berle's Texaco Star Theater on Tuesday nights, opposite their own radio lineup. By 1950, the networks were filling their entire primetime TV schedule. New York radio actor John Gibson remembered those days. And this was really the beginning of the end for radio as we knew it, John. Did you recognize that early? Oh, yes. Yes. For example, I remember going out to Chicago to record a show with Jimmy Durante and Don Amici when they were happened to be in Chicago and, you know, close enough so that I could go out by train and spend the night and then come back the next night. Mm-hmm. Coming through Pennsylvania at this time, I noticed these houses all with the television antennas. 
everywhere you looked. And I suddenly realized I better get out of radio because here it is, even out here like Johnstown and places like that, the houses uh, way down the valley had tall antennas and the ones up high had short ones, but they were everywhere. And all of a sudden, uh, radio was slackening up, and uh, whether you like television or not, you had to get in it if you wanted to keep on working. Anybody who can toss out the corn like you is a born turkey rancher. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for being with us during our 16th year for Johnson's Wax. You've been wonderfully loyal to us all these years, and... That same year, many stars were jumping to CBS to take advantage of a capital gains tax policy. NBC locked Jim and Marion into a multi-year extension. Let me see a calendar. Okay, I seen a calendar just the other day. It's right here in the hall closet. No, McGee, no, now, please. But CBS dominated the season's ratings. Johnson's Wax canceled sponsorship after May 23, 1950. Pet Milk picked up the tab in the fall. Betty Lou Gerson remembered how the radio industry was changing in the 1950s. It was just later on when everything became so mechanical when they would tape everything. They taped the shows and they taped the music and they taped the sound effects and they just taped everything and they taped the heart right out of the business. Because actually, back in the old days, if you were really good, you used your script merely as reference. You didn't stay glued to a script. You were glued to the actor or actors you were working with. It was very, very much like the theater in that sense. I know I was always moving around. My hand was, you know, through my hair and all that sort of thing. You played the show. The lights were darkened, the lights were on you, and you did not play to the audience. You could not. You had to, in the first place, play to the mic to a certain extent so that your S's didn't hiss and you would do it at an angle. And you played to the actor, the scene with the actor. The audience was except for your stand-up comedies, and they played directly for their lives. In 1951, the show's rating dropped again. In three seasons, they'd lost more than half their audience. Marion Jordan's health began to deteriorate. Doctors suggested she take a long rest. She refused. NBC would move production to their home in Encino. The music would be pre-recorded, and the live audience would be gone. It was the end of an era, and the chance for a new beginning. From Nashville, Tennessee, the folk music capital of the world, it's your Grand Ole Opry starring Cowboy Copas. <laughs> August 17, 1953 issue of Broadcasting Magazine, NBC's VP of Operating, Ted Cott, said that if TV killed off the conversation, radio was going to revive it. NBC Radio's motto was, what's good in radio is good for radio. 
the network was in the development stage for 28 new programs and 13 additional news segments. There would be quiz shows, a midnight column, a program about the NBC chimes, and a radio version of a Sunday newspaper called Weekend. They'd give more attention to shows of local importance, like the Grand Ole Opry, broadcast from the Ryman Auditorium over WSM in Nashville. NBC's marketing department touted the network as the headquarters for new ideas. Advertisers were to sell commercial breaks rather than each show. NBC called it the tandem plan. In the fall, their lineup programming themes would change each night. Mondays would be music night, Tuesday's adventure, Friday's comedy. Jimmy Stewart would debut in The Six Shooter, and Frank Sinatra would star in Rocky Fortune. Frank Sinatra, transcribed as Rocky Fortune. NBC presents Frank Sinatra, starring as that footloose and frequently unemployed young gentleman, Rocky Fortune. about you, but I'm the kind of guy who can't stay put. I get restless. Give me a nice soft job, a buck in my pocket and a meal ticket, and one will get you ten, I'll quit the job, lose the buck on the GGs, and exchange the meal ticket for a train ticket. You take last week, for instance. The employment agency sends me down to Houston Street for a job as a chauffeur. Hey, Mac, this 159 Houston? And what do you want? Somebody wants to hire a chauffeur. A chauffeur? <laughs> I made a joke. You take a look around this neighborhood, mister. After 18 years as a weekly show, Fibber McGee and Molly would air five nights per week for 15 minutes. It would be produced and directed by Max Hutto and written by Phil Leslie. Packaged with Second Chance and It Pays to Be Married, NBC charged just under $3,000 for a minute of sponsorship. It was touted in advertisements as the lowest cost for network time in history. Fibber McGee and Molly debuted in the new format, on October 5th, 1953. Ah, tackle box. Stuffed salmon. Got to varnish that salmon one of these days. Ah, my old mandolin. Ah, and that's it. No hammer. I found it, dearie. Here it is, in the fruit bowl. Oh, that's where I left my hammer. Give me it, will you? I got work to do today. I'm turning over a new leaf. With a hammer? The show found sponsorship in January of 1954, reaching two million homes per evening, third in ratings among evening serials. all the little odd chores that you begged me to do around the house today. Well, hallelujah. In the fall, BBDO Chicago bought time on the series for Murine Eye Lotion. The show was now officially sold out. The network found success selling short-term sponsorship, centered around either holidays or corporate events. Part of the reason audiences were still listening was the use of running gags. Sometimes ideas come out of news stories that you've read or out of... The first story I ever did... Don had hired me. I was to come in on T 
Tuesday with some story ideas. And I sat in our little house over on Las Palmas just sweating blood because I wasn't, didn't, I was overwhelmed by the opportunity and I didn't, nothing was happening much and uh, I had a few ideas, I didn't care too much for them. And I was having a cup of coffee late at night in the kitchen and I picked up a bottle of cream to put some in the coffee. And it said on the bottle, Ador Dairy Farms invites you to visit our dairy. And it just struck me that that would be a funny notion for Fibber and Molly to take up that invitation off the milk <laughs> bottle and go visit the dairy. The finish we had for the show, I had for the show, was that that had been on their milk bottle for 20 years and nobody had ever come to see them. Arthur Q. Bryan, who had played Major Hoople that I had been writing, mm -hmm. they hired him to play the president of the dairy, and he just broke down and cried when they came because all these years nobody uh -huh. had ever come to see the dairy. That was how the first idea came to me. One, I remember we saw a picture in Life or Time, perhaps, of a woman who uh, tried to get on a bus with an armful of packages, a Christmas rush or something, and the bus driver closed the door in her face because the bus was full. And she got furious and went around quickly and stood in front of the bus and wouldn't let it move until they let her on. It developed into a thing between the woman and the bus driver that went on for about an hour. Barred that, used it mm -hmm. for fibber. He went out and stood in front of the bus, and we rallied the merchants with him and people on both sides, and the merchants brought a chair out for him to sit on, and they were bringing him ice cream, and he was loving it. When you get to know the characters well, you know how they react to things and exactly what Fibber mm -hmm. would do in a situation. And he did the very logical thing for him. He made a big thing out of not being allowed on the bus, and, and it took all afternoon while they fought back and forth, and they called the mayor and everybody to come and try to settle the argument. When the driver finally agreed to let Fibber on the bus, he discovered that it wasn't his bus after all, which was typically <laughs> Fibber, you see. It was the wrong bus. He said, get that thing out of here, bud. I've been waiting here long enough. <laughs> By 1955, Phil Leslie had been writing for the Jordans for over a decade. NBC saw the show's success as an opportunity to relaunch The Great Gildersleeve as a serial. It would air following Fibber, McGee, and Molly, just like when the spinoff first started. Willard Waterman was guilty. You did the Radio Gildersleeve right to the very end of radio, near the end, I think. I think we were the last... 15-minute shows then, we, weren't you? For uh, two years before the end of Arrow, we did it as a five-week, 15-minute show, mm -hmm. and it was very, very popular at that time. And then we went back after Crash dropped it to a half-hour format. And uh, we were, I think, the last audience mm. show in Hollywood. Then in May of 1955, while people were having picnics, cookouts, and carnivals, Fibber and Molly took over Walt's malt shop in one of Wistful Vista's most memorable weekends. And now, here's Arlene Francis. Whose very first show on NBC Radio was What's My Name? But since you already know that answer, what is the name of the exciting new program concept that began NBC's fourth decade? Here's a clue. Right, monitor. Our motto was going places and doing things. And we called our hosts 
communicators. And no one could communicate better or more warmly than Dave Garraway. Isn't that a mad noise? In May of 1955, NBC's programming department was busy readying for the launch of Monitor. It would debut in June and quickly revamp NBC's weekend programming. Although dramatic radio took up less and less airtime, there was still interest in creating new dramatic programming for NBC. Countdown for blastoff. X minus 5, minus 4, minus 3, minus 2, X minus 1, fire! From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand would-be worlds. The National Broadcasting Company presents X minus one. Tonight, Universe. X-1 debuted over NBC Airways on Sunday, April 24, 1955, from WRCA in New York. It was an outgrowth of Dimension X, which aired in 1951. We are just beginning to discover how boundless our universe really is. And yet as man reaches out to the stars, out toward infinity, ironically enough, he may be building himself a new kind of prison. What would it be like to live all your life in a world no larger, say, than a single gigantic rocket ship bound on an endless mercy? Hugh, look out! You all right? Yes, just missed me. What was it? A mutant with a slingshot, I think. Must have dashed down that passageway. Want to go after it? No, we'd never catch it, Alan. Probably 12 decks above us by now. I didn't think they ever came down this far. Trolls usually get them before they reach this level. They get more daring each generation. This one looked like a female. Uh, Male or female, it might have killed us. I told you this trip was pure foolishness, climbing 24 (laughs) deck levels to hear a crazy old man rave. All right, Alan, we're almost there now. Let me see compartment X, 15, level 24. Uh, This is the place. This area smells as if it hadn't been visited by a sanitation crew for generations. Mm. This part of the ship is almost deserted. Working uh, radio with Jack Webb was an interesting experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You sat there during rehearsal time, and everybody caught up on what everybody else was doing, and then you got up and recorded the show. Cold. (laughs) That was toward the end. First, you used to get a run-through, and then at the end, you didn't even read it. He'd hand you the script and say, you're doing Aunt Georgia, and you're doing Uncle Harry, and you're Ben, and so forth. Okay, let's cut. He wanted that fresh reaction. He got it. He got it. <laughs> and, if yeah, you were, yeah. and I'd say, well, how that old is she? Seeing what, what it for the first time. Find out is she know. nice or is she bad? He'd say, well, she's 50, and uh, yeah, you like her. Try something. <laughs> so you do, and if he doesn't stop you after about four or five sentences, you know you've you're he close. had a character and hope you can remember how you started because you don't know what's coming up. 
Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to juvenile detail. You get a report that a teenage boy has been found in a downtown alley. He's in critical condition. Your job? Check it out. It was Wednesday, November 16th. It was cool in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of juvenile detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Powers. My name's Friday. We're on our way into the office, and it was 9.17 p.m. when we got to the second floor of Georgia Street Juvenile. The squad room. I don't know, Joe. What? You see a kid like that, you start wondering. Yeah. Fifteen years old, trying to hold up a liquor store. Kind of worries the guy. What do you mean? What well, about your own kids? How are they going to turn out? Well, most of them turn out okay. Yeah, you can't help worrying, though. Well, you're a father. Maybe you're better off, Joe, not having the worries. You really believe that? Well, I guess so. Well, why don't you stop trying to marry me off? Oh, say, that reminds me. Yeah. You know the Phillips? Live down the street from us? I don't think I do. They were over for dinner the same night you were. Yeah. Last summertime, Faye made fried chicken. Oh, yeah. Remember? I remember the chicken. Go ahead. You're going to spend Christmas with us, aren't you? Christmas. Faye told me to be sure and remind you. It's only a month or so off. That soon, huh? Yeah. Can we count on you? Yeah, if we're not working. Swell. I'll let Faye know. What's this got to do with the Phillips? Mm, nothing. Mm-hmm. It's got nothing to do with them, Joe. Why are you so darn suspicious? Which one of them has the sister? Huh? Come on, Mr. and Mrs., which one? Both of them, for all I know. Well, which one has a sister who's coming out here for the holidays? Which one? Mrs. Phillips. And they're all going to be at your place for Christmas dinner, is that it? Well, Faye hasn't asked them yet. She wanted to be sure that you... Mm -hmm. Okay to ask them? They're your friends. You won't regret it, Joe. You know Mrs. Phillips is darn nice looking. Good talker to her for sisters, anything like she... Just do me one big favor, will you? What's that? Christmas is still five weeks away. Don't start selling me now. <laughs> I wouldn't try to sell you on any girl. You know that. You bet. I never even met this one. I was just thinking that sometimes you can kind of sort of judge a person by family and... Juvenile Friday. Where's that? I see. Yeah. Found a kid lying in an alley off Sheridan Street. He's hurt pretty bad. An accident? Knife in his back. NBC's highest-rated dramatic show was Dragnet. Although Dragnet had moved into TV in 1951, it maintained its radio audience. Three million homes still tuned into Jack Webb's police procedural on Tuesday nights. We're only a couple blocks away. We headed right over. Where'd you find him? Yeah, I'll show you. Right here against that wall. Mm-hmm. Must have lost a lot of blood. Yeah. Knife still in him? Mm-hmm. Small of the back. Looked like he'd been beat up, too. You say anything about who did it? Well, he mumbled something. We couldn't understand him, and then he passed out. How old would you say he was? Oh, 15, 16, maybe. Uh-huh. He's a good-looking kid, about 5'8", black hair, blue eyes, regular features. What kind of clothes? A jeans and a jacket, windbreaker type. See anybody around who might have done it? No, not a soul. The street was deserted. Mm-hmm. My partner's out looking now. I'll give him a hand. All right. Who filed a complaint? I don't know. Well, we'll check the board. I'm afraid that won't help. Hmm? Well, they don't know either. Directed all of you, would you describe a typical Saturday morning? At Gunsmoke? Yeah. Not in mixed company, I would. 
Any resemblance between the dialogue in the rehearsal and the dialogue on the show was purely coincidental. Howard McNear used to refer to it as Dirty Saturday. <laughs> and we'd get off on a, a, a start, the most innocuous line being given a provocative reading would result in the script being absolutely blue from page one on through. Uh, there's a man on KNUS in John Denver, John Dunning, who has interviewed quite a few of us in the process of doing it, but he has an outtake of a dress rehearsal on the new hotel. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think we do, but let me tell you, then, then need you ask about what a Saturday was like over there. You tell him now, Marshal, and you tell him tonight. He is crazy, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, there's something sure wrong with him. I don't believe any of that about him being tired of killing people. No. It's more like he's scared of something, ain't it? Yes, sir. Yes, sir? I think I know what it might be. What? Al James. What's he got to do with it? I don't know. But let's go find him. Well, what for? To tell him Hank Shen isn't armed. Well, he could see that. He was wearing a coat. <laughs> Right out there in the street. Yeah, come on. There's some men down there, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. If it was a fight, it sure didn't last long. One bullet can end a fight, Chester. Mm-hmm. Well, there's somebody laying there. Looks like Hank Shin. Yeah. Nobody ain't paying any attention to him. They're all crowded around our old Jane's. By golly, that is Jane's. I'm going to go take a look at Shen, Chester. You better go back and get Doc, huh? Yes, Mr. Dillon. I'll hurry. Chen. Chen. He, he shot me, Marshal. He shot me. Al James. He ran into me here, but I was so scared I couldn't say nothing. I, I tried to open my coat to show him I wasn't armed, and he shot me. Doc will be here in a minute, Jim. Marshal? Yeah. Marshal, I... I never killed nobody before today. No, I didn't think so. And fellas up in Blackhawk, they had a fight. I was the only other man there, and I hid out till it was over. They killed themselves. And you took credit for it. Mm-hmm. It, it made people respect me. All kinds of people. You understand? Yeah, I understand. How's he doing, Marshal? I hit him twice. Marshal? Well, 
You sure died slow. Pretty slow, James. He went for his gun, Marshal. The men over there can tell you they saw it. You heard about his reputation and you had to kill him, didn't you? Self-defense, Marshal. There's nothing to talk about. Hank Shen was a liar, James. His reputation was a fake. What? I don't believe you. It's true. Now, besides, he wasn't even armed. Take a look. He ain't wearing a gun. But he, he went for it. I saw him. Everybody did. You killed an unarmed man, James. I don't like that. You'll have to stand trial for it. That ain't what's bothering me. No? It was a mistake. I'll get off. But everybody's gonna be laughing at me. Especially if you tell him about him being a liar. He shot a drunk this afternoon, and that nearly scared him to death. You have to tell him that, Marshal? I don't like gunmen, James. What do you mean? After this, your reputation isn't going to be worth much. It won't be worth nothing. So it looks like Hank Shen got himself a gunman after all, doesn't it? All right, come on, let's go to jail. Over on CBS, Gunsmoke's dual broadcast pulled in radio's highest combined rating. New episodes aired on Saturday evenings with a repeat the following Saturday afternoon. Gunsmoke's success led to its TV incarnation and several CBS Western radio dramas in the late 1950s. Mild and plenty quick on the draw. That's L&M for you. And the pure white miracle tip on the business end of every L&M filters out everything but the taste of the world's finest tobaccos. All you have to do is pick up a carton of L&M's and you'll see what I mean. L&M stands out from all the rest. We were out for General Foods and Jell-O for ten years. Uh And Lucky Strike came after them. Lucky Strike sponsored Jack and the Benny Show for 15 years. They were... The greatest longevity of any client on the show. General Foods being 10 years for Jell-O, 15 years for Lucky Strike. It's amazing. You think back, Jack Benny had as his sponsor Jell-O for 10 years and uh, Lucky Strike for 15 years. The Jack Benny program, transcribed and presented by Lucky Strike, the cigarette that tastes better. And today, now here in the 1980s, you're lucky if you get a sponsor to pick up a 30-second commercial during a television special. That's right. No longevity at all. My, how times have changed. Yeah, really have. But you see, the sponsors took pride in the programming in those days. Now, there was always the hue and cry. I'll editorialize for a second here. Good. Always the hue and cry that once they got the network programming out of the hands of the sponsors, the audiences would have better programming. And eventually, through the 50s and the 60s, the programming moved away from the sponsors who really produced the shows through their advertising agency, or most of them. You got it. To the point where now the networks are producing the shows or paying for the shows to be produced, and the sponsors really don't have any interest in it other than the sheer numbers they're getting out out there. Whereas in the old days, and you were there with the Jell-O and with the Lucky Strike thing, I believe that the audience, in their response to the sponsor, 
fortified the sponsor and kept his interest in presenting that program. I think your analysis is very well taken. I don't think anybody can dispute it. Enjoy Lucky Strike, the best-tasting cigarette you ever smoked. For the taste that you like, light up a Lucky Strike right now. Light up a Lucky. It's light up time. The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Rochester, Dennis Day, Bob Crosby, and yours truly, Don Wilson. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we come to the last Jack Benny show of the month. It's also the last program of the current series. And as a matter of fact, it's the last show of the season. So now I bring you a man I thought wouldn't last, Jack Benny! Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking. And Don, I know that you're trying to be clever on the final show, but how could you possibly have thought that I wouldn't last? After all, a man my age is just in the prime of life. (laughs) I guess you're right, Jack. They've been priming you for 20 years. (laughs) Don. Don. George Global. Cinemascope stomach. Now, Don, control yourself. But, you know, you may be right. After all, nobody can last forever. You're sure working on it, Bob. Well, I see we have another candidate for the unemployment insurance. (laughs) You better watch it, sister. Jack's right, Mary. He deserves a little more respect from us. After all, he's one of the pioneers in the broadcasting business. You're darn right. Why, when I did my first program, there were hardly any radios in the country. And darn few people. (laughs) Darn few people, darn few people. Plenty of people when I started. They may have had feathers in their hair, but they were people. Mary, if I were Jackie Gleason, you know what I'd say? One of these days. One of these days. Pow! Back to the May Company. If you were Jackie Gleason, I wouldn't have to go back. All right, all right. Oh, Jack, why are you so touchy? Can't you take a joke? Certainly I can take a joke, but here we're doing our last program of the season and everyone comes in and insults me. I didn't insult you, Mr. Benny. Huh? Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello, sir. Well, you see, Mary, Don, Dennis knows how to treat me with respect. Certainly. I feel that when a man keeps you working all these years, he deserves respect. Well, naturally. A man doesn't get to be the star of a radio and television program unless he has ability and talent. Thank you, Dennis. No star can keep a loyal following of fans loving him through all the years unless he's an outstanding personality. Well. Can I go now, Mr. Benny? (laughs) Why? I can't keep reading this stuff. It's making me sick. (laughs) In May of 1955, radio's highest rated show was still the Jack Benny program. Just under three million homes tuned in, and many more in their cars. Earlier, like in 1946. (laughs) Oh, well, it's the last show of the season. I won't be seeing him for quite a while. Oh, say that reminds me, Dennis. What are you going to do? On May 22nd, after 23 seasons on the air, Jack Benny brought his radio show to a close. In the fall, Benny would move solely into TV. 
Ladies and gentlemen, although this is called the Jag Benny program, I'd like to say that its success is due to the competent people I have working with me. My wonderful cast, the great supporting players I have, my producer, my engineer, my sound man, my capable writers, my fine musicians. How can you read that stuff? Doesn't it make you sick? <laughs> Good night, folks. See you in the fall. program is written by Sam Perrin, Milt Josephsberg, George Balzer, John Tackerberry, Al Gordon, Hal Goldman, and produced and transcribed by Hilliard Marks. Filter smokers, here's the true tobacco taste you've been looking for. Filter tip Tariton gives you all the full, rich flavor of Tariton's famous quality tobacco, and real filtration too. Filter tip Tariton incorporates activated charcoal, renowned for its unusual powers of selective filtration and used far and wide to purify the air we breathe, the water and beverages we drink. Look for the red, white and blue stripes on the package. They identify Filter Tip Tariton, the best in filtered smoking. The Jack Benny program is brought to you by the American Tobacco Company, America's leading manufacturer of cigarettes. darling, I want to take just a moment to ring my silver anniversary chimes. Three chimes of silver. This is NBC. N the National B Broadcasting C Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. No one familiar with the history of his country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. 
On Friday, May 13, 1955, a young singer named Elvis Presley was performing in Jacksonville, Florida. His concert caused a riot. Times were changing, but in Wistful Vista, America's heartland was alive and well. We're talking with Jim Jordan, the famous Fibber McGee from the Fibber McGee and Molly days of the good old days of radio, and we're well, we're right about at 79 Wistful Vista now in our trip through the main street of yesterday on radio. Jim Jordan, was 79 Wistful Vista the address of Fibber McGee and Molly right from the beginning in 1935? No, not the beginning. We didn't have an address and we didn't have a house in the beginning. In the beginning, we started selling a wax product called Carnu for the Johnson Company. Mm -hmm. We traveled around in a car for about a year. Really? Yes. What kind of a car was it? Oh, a broken down jalopy, and we'd <laughs> drive into filling stations, and we'd get into the, that would lead into the Carnu uh -huh. commercials. Uh -huh. When they decided to go on with it after the 26 weeks, see, we made a deal. In the beginning, we said we didn't care about what money we got. We only cared for one thing. They leave us on for 26 weeks. Don't stop us after 13. And they told us afterwards that if they hadn't have done that, they probably would have dropped us after the 13 weeks because it was summertime to begin with. Uh -huh. We didn't bother them very much those first 13 weeks. <laughs> so when we wanted to settle down, they wanted to put us into a house. You know, have a home. Mm -hmm. So how will we get this house? Somebody conceived the idea of, uh, they didn't have any money, he didn't have any money, mm -hmm. how are they going to get a house? We entered into a raffle on a real estate subdivision and we won it. We won the house in a <laughs> raffle, that's where we got it. <laughs> and the name of this town that was having this, this place was called Wistful Vista. In, Wistful is sad. Vista is view, so Wistful Vista was the place that had a sad view. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where Wistful Vista came from. And then we named our house the same as the town, 79 Wistful Vista. chain is on there forever. Now, let me see if it works. Ah, oh, swell, perfect. Now, let some pushy peddler try to shoehorn his way in here. Get his size 12 brogans into this crack. Yes, what is it? No, thanks, we got plenty. Goodbye. McGee, you myopic moose. This is me, Doc Campbell. <laughs> got the password, Doc? Stop horsing around and open that door. That's the password, Ducky. Come in. What are you playing? The king is in his castle? Nope, I promised Molly I'd install this chain while she was gone. Here, I'll show you how it works. You needn't explain it to me, pony boy. I got one on my own front door. Only they're no darn good. What you mean, no good? Just what I said. Anybody with a hairpin or a piece of wire can unhook it in two minutes. <laughs> Doctor, you are full of more wrong answers, misinformation, and false facts than a Russian encyclopedia. Is that so, Bubblehead? Who are you calling Blubberhead? I said Bubblehead. Oh. Well, that's different. And if you want to see how easy that door chain is to unhook, come on outside with me. Get me a hairpin or... 
Well, never mind. I got a paper clip. I'll straighten it and show you. Okay, wise guy. You go out on the front porch and I'll put the chain on the door and... No, I got to be out there to watch. So I'll go out on the front porch and you put the chain on the door and... No, you got to be out there to unhook it, don't you? Obviously. Uh... Well, we'll both put the chain on the door and then we'll both go out on the front porch and... Hmm. I don't think we can do this, Doc, because after we put the chain on the door, we can't get outside to work on it. Genius. I have a timid suggestion. Hmm? Let's put the chain on the front door here. Mm -hmm. Then you and I'll go out the back door. Walk around to the front door from the outside, of course. Hey, that's a wonderful idea. Yeah. I was just going to think of that myself. I'll put the chain on the door right now, and we'll go out the back way. And if you can get this thing unhooked from the outside, I'll eat your dirty old satchel, pills and all. This is something that's very important. We learned that a long time ago with the Smith family. Uh-huh. There's more fun with the McGee shortly. You painted a picture the same as if you were doing it in a motion picture or doing it on a stage for people to see. You painted that picture so the people could see what they were laughing at. That was mm -hmm. the trick. Mm -hmm. We had a, an expression that we used, that, that don't get the picture. Uh -huh. if, you do, uh -huh. if you don't make a picture, you're not going anywhere. This is the way we thought about it anyway. It's time for Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Sundays through Thursdays, NBC brings you Fibber, McGee, and Molly transcribed. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Ralph Goodman and directed by Max Hutto. We'll be into our story in just a moment. Right now, though, Molly is a little appalled at her husband. Heavenly days, McGee. Look at you. Where have you been? Giving the car a little checkup. It's something everyone ought to do once in a while. On their hands and knees? Well, either that or you lift your car up with one hand and check it with the other. <laughs> now, McGee, you're just trying to be funny. If you're so interested in checkups, why don't we get our prudential agent over here to give our insurance policies the once-over? You know we need it, and it's a service prudential agents are always happy to give. What do you suppose makes an insurance policy change during the year? It doesn't, but we do. In a year's time, lots of changes take place in a family. They buy a new home, dad gets a raise, a daughter is married off, and it's things like these that affect insurance policies. Well, I was thinking about Social Security benefits. I bet a lot of people would like to see how their new benefits tie in with their present insurance. And they should. Folks, to make sure your insurance is still geared to give you the most security, to serve you the way you want, get together with your Prudential agent. Let him give your insurance a checkup soon. On May 18th, Fibber and Molly began a new story arc which had the town of Wistful Vista running Walt's Malt Shop for charity. You know, the Wistful Vista Elks Club held a special meeting tonight, and one of the Elks is telling his wife all about it right now. A whole bunch of us, and it's okay with Walt on account of because he's going out of town, and the dough we make for the summer camp ought to Wait, be enough to... ho, ho, ho. Slow down, McGee. You're talking so fast I can't understand a word you're saying. Well, the reason I rushed right home is because I wanted you to be the first one to know about it. Well, now, start at the beginning. The Elks Club, and, and what about Walt's Malt Shop? We're taking it over, us Elks, for the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Walt's going out of town for the weekend, and he's going to let us run it. And whatever we make goes for the Elks Summer Camp for the kids. Oh, isn't that wonderful? That sounds like... And you can help, too, you girls. All, all of you wives of us Elks. Help? Yeah, you're, you're going to be waitresses. You and... And, and Mabel Toops and some of the others' wives. Oh, really? Say, mm -hmm. that ought to be. Cora Burns is going to give you gals all lessons tomorrow. 
on how to do everything. Oh, this ought to be lots of fun, McGee. Corey's been waiting tables for Walt so long, she knows all the ins and outs. Oh, this'll be a picnic. Yep, and we'll make a lot of dough for the kids' camps, too. Whose idea was this, anyway? Mine. It was? Well, gee whiz, don't sound so surprised. Oh, well, I, I didn't I mean... I come up with a good idea every now and then, you know. They're not all bad, you know. <laughs> of course not. You think of... Like, lots... whose idea was it to have that pet show a couple of years ago? You mean the time that Great Dane broke loose and chased Mrs. Spradley's cat into the cage with that old sea captain's talking parrot? <laughs> and it's a good thing the parrot only spoke Spanish because just the tone of his voice turned the air blue and three ladies fainted and the captain sued you for $50? Yeah, and... Doc Gambles. That's whose idea that was, come to think of it. He thought that one up and now it's my turn to think one up and this is it. Good for you. We got everything settled at the meeting tonight and on the way out they give us each a card with our job on it. You know, what each guy's supposed to have charge of. And guess what mine is? I can't imagine. Give me a hint. Well, it's got something to do with a special business ability that I got that most other guys ain't. Hmm? Got. Oh. I'm going to run the joint, supervise, handle the money. You are speaking, my dear, to the business manager of Walt Smolt for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Well, heavenly days. That's wonderful. And believe me, they couldn't have got a better guy. They won't have the mix-up on the money this time like they did on our dinner dance card party masquerade bazaar that time that Mort Toops was in charge. Mix-up? Oh, boy, was that ever a mess. We still haven't found out what happened to the dart money. <laughs> well, I thought at the time you boys were trying to do a little too much. I mean, about four affairs in one. Uh, if you know how to handle money, you know how to handle money, that's all. Mort, don't. I do. I don't know where you ever learned, either. <laughs> so little practice. And that's the reason my fellow Elks picked me to be business manager, on account of because I know how to manage business. They know I'm on my toes, alert and wide awake. <sighs> I know what's going on around me every minute. Answer the phone, will you, kiddo? Hmm? And tell whoever it is that I've gone to bed. I want to get lots of sleep tonight because tomorrow I got a lot of details to take care of. Not that that worries me. I got a memory like an elephant and I never forget a detail. Come in. Oh, was that the door? Hello, folks. Oh, Mr. Wimple. Yes, I, I hate to rush you like this, Mr. McGee, but I got tired waiting out in your car. You said you'd just be a minute, and then you'd drive me home. Shall I walk? Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Wimple. I, I got so excited about my appointment for the malt shop that I... Oh, gracious, I'm excited, too. I am head dishwasher, Mrs. McGee. Really? In charge of the entire detail, and that includes garbage disposal. <laughs> Sounds very glamorous. See? Here's my assignment card. Head, D-S-H-W-S-R. Dishwasher. That's the way Henry Lester... Uh, He's makes the grand him. exalted elk, Molly. That's the way he does everything. Very businesslike. Did Mr. McGee tell you about his job? Yes. Business manager. And it's only natural because of his memory for details and his natural alertness. <clears throat> He's always wide awake, on his toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he knows. Well, you wait there, Wimp, while I put my shirt and shoes back on and hang these pajamas up, and I'll drive you home like I said I would. Back to Wistful Vista in a minute. Although he was long gone from the series, even in 1955, Don Quinn's fingerprints were all over the show. But there was a thread of a story... Always. And everything happened around just a little light theme. Yes. I think the genius uh, behind that, of course, was Don Quinn. That's He'd right. come up with this line, and then the, the characters almost couldn't all, help but reacting in those different ways. All the storylines came out of a meeting 
Mm-hmm. Not, not that Don didn't bring them in, mm-hmm. but we would hash them over, and sometimes other people would bring in something that would become mm-hmm. a storyline. But he had the ability to... People are beginning to realize what a great writer he was now. I was over at Walt Disney Studios yesterday talking to some people. One of these fellows said to me, he said that Don Quinn, he, he was one of the great writers, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. And we hear that more now than we did 20 years ago, which is as it should be. Well, he was working then. He was uh, doing oh, his yeah. thing then, and they're creating these programs yeah. and the characters. But several times, we would give up on a show on Monday noon. Mm. Just, mm. We're ready. It's all on paper, ready to go. And it wasn't just coming off. I can remember him. He said, well, I'll, I'll start here, and I'll take it home, and I'll rewrite it tonight, Monday night. Mm. And we'd do it Tuesday. Don was a wonderful, wonderful man. Don was a great comedy mind. The comedy dialogue just flowed out of him. Just a beautiful, quick comedy mind. Awfully nice man. Everybody mm-hmm. loved Don. And uh, he liked me, and I was just as eager to please. Oh, boy, I was <laughs> overwhelmed by this opportunity, you know. And I was very anxious to do well, and I worked hard. And it just worked out that we began. I began to write enough like him. And Marion and Jim were so great to write for because they had all these wonderful little things that they did, and they're great people anyhow to work with, and it, it was just, this made my whole life, you know. It's me, Molly. I'm back. I took Wimp home. I'm back. Dr. Gamble just called. He wants to stop by on his way home from the hospital, so I put the coffee on. Doc Gamble? Gee whiz, I ought to get to bed. I, I got a hard day ahead Well, tomorrow. I didn't know. I told him to come ahead. He said he couldn't make the Elks meeting tonight, and he wanted you to give him a rundown on it. Hey, that's right. Old Fatso wasn't there, and he didn't know about it. You didn't tell him. You didn't tell him. You didn't tell him about Walt's small shop deal and me going to be business manager. Not a word. I knew you'd like to do it yourself. This is him now. Come in. Hi, Molly. Hello, Junior. Come in, Doctor. Yeah, pull up a chair and loosen your girdle, George. You must have pulled the strings too tight this morning, boy. Your eyes are bugged out again. Oh, Oh, you are a funny fellow. How do you think up such funny remarks? All right if I slap him in the mouth with my satchel, Molly? Oh, no, Doctor, no. (laughs) You'll spill your pills all over the place. Okay. (laughs) Now, just level off, both of you, before you get in trouble. Me get in trouble? With him? No, with me. Oh, (laughs) Come on out to the kitchen, boys. The coffee's on. Mm -hmm. You and Doc have the coffee, kiddo. I better not have any. I gotta get a good night's sleep. You know, a big day tomorrow. A lot of things to do. Million details, big decisions. Oh, stop. Biggest decision you'll have to make tomorrow is whether to get up or not. (laughs) And if I were you, I wouldn't. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, for your big fat information meeting, Skipper, if you hadn't skipped the meeting tonight, you wouldn't talk so stupid. Tell him, Molly. You mean about Walt's malt? Yeah. Sit there, doctor, any place. Well, thanks, Molly. What about Walt's malt? Your Elks Club is taking it over for the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Right. Oh. Us Elks are going to run it while Walt is out of town, Fatso. And you too. Run it? For what? For charity. Oh. All the dough we make is going to go into our summer camp fund for the kids. And we wives are going to be the waitresses, doctor. Yeah. At least that's what McGee tells me. Yeah. That's right, Ducky. The committee handed out the jobs, you know, each guy's assignment when we left tonight. And hey, you better check them for your job, boy. It's wrote out on a card down there with your name on it. What are you going to be? What's your job? Well, 
Each job, doctor, has been assigned according to each man's special talents for handling the job to which each man has been assigned to each man. Answer my question. Well, the most important job of all, naturally, needs the brightest, quickest-thinking, brainiest elk they got. Well, forget him. It's you I'm talking about. <laughs> like I say, doctor, to each his own. Mort Toops was chose sweep-out man. <laughs> Wimp was chose dishwasher. The girls are going to be waitresses. Ah, oh, for now, who can that be? McGee's residence. McGee speaking. Who? Oh, just a minute. It's for you, Doc. Huh? Jack Santos on the assignment committee. Oh. He traced you here. He wants to tell you what your job is. Okay, let's have it. Hello? Yes, Jack. What? I'm going to do what? Oh, now, Jack, I'd like to help, but... Huh? Henry Lesnar handed out the jobs, huh? Well, I'll just get Henry on the phone right now, and we'll see about this. Yeah, goodbye. What's the matter, Doctor? Oh, I can't handle this. They want me to work with McGee as his assistant. His assistant? I don't need any help. What's the big idea? That's what I want to know. I'm not suited for that kind of work. You said it. You're not suited for it. But they leave us not to complain, Doctor. I'll find some little thing for you to do to help me. This is for charity, and we should all take our assignment with a smile. I know, but I can't be on my feet all day clearing off tables. I never could handle a tray of dirty dishes anyhow. Tables? And dirty dishes? What are you... That's what the man said. Help you. But Dr. McGee is supposed Certainly. To... I was made business manager. Here. Here. Here's the card right here. Look at there. Henry Lester wrote this out himself. B-U-S. Business. M-A-N. Manager. B-U-S-M-A-N? Sure. What? Why, well, certainly that... <laughs> hey... Bus man? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, brother. <laughs> Business manager. <laughs> oh, A bus man, Sonny, is an overgrown bus boy, and you're in charge. Give me that fool. <laughs> now, McGee, remember your own words. Boy. It's for charity. Leave us not complain. Yeah, let's take it with a smile. <laughs> hello, 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 operator. Give me Henry Lester. Yeah. He's the grand exalted ruler of the backstabbing club I belong to. I don't know his number, but he lives over on 14th near Old. Fibber and Molly will be right back. Hello, I'm John Wald. Each weekday afternoon, you're invited into the lives and homes of some of America's most beloved friends on NBC. I'm talking about Stella Dallas. Young Widder Brown, Lorenzo Jones, and Just Plain Bill. You'll share their lives, their loves, their heartbreak or happiness in every warm and human episode. Your heart will go out to Stella Dallas as she comes in conflict with mother love and sacrifice. You'll hear how Ellen Brown bravely fights vicious threats and ugly gossip about her personal life on Young Widder Brown. Lorenzo Jones is confronted with the problem of married life and a career. And Just Plain Bill Davidson... The small-town barber uses his wisdom and kindliness to help his friends and neighbors. For dramatic afternoon entertainment with touches of humor, be sure to listen to Stella Dallas, Young Widder Brown, Lorenzo Jones, and Just Plain Bill. Heard each weekday on NBC Radio. Well, I got everything straightened out, kiddo. I just talked to Fred Krupp, and he said he didn't like his job, too, either, so he switched. What was his job? Pots and pans man. You mean you'd rather clean pots and pans than... No, no, that was his original job, before he switched with Frank Fuller. 
Now, Frank's pots and pans man instead of cashier, which Herb Travis didn't want in the first place because his wife usually handles the money in his family. McGee, and, hmm? just answer in five words or less. What is your new official title for the weekend at Walt's Malt? I'm going to be chef. Ah, oh, good for you. Yep. Good night. Good night, Al. Arthur Q. Bryan. Famous as the voice of Elmer Fudd, had a long radio career, including on Fibber McGee and Molly, where he voiced Doc Gamble. Arthur Q. Bryan, you say, played Major Hoople, which was a show you wrote for radio. That was based on the boarding house. Gene A. Hearn's comedy sketch. Comedy sketch, yeah. Our boarding house. Was that his first appearance on the show, that when you wrote him I as the... I think uh, that it was. I remember that on that when I turned in that dairy idea, Don was so pleased. I called him on the phone at night, midnight, and gave him the idea, because Don was always up very late mm -hmm. at night. And he said, very simply said, I think you're going to make me very happy. Well, of course, this made me yeah. just ecstatic, you know. Monday, when we read it, we didn't have to hire an actor for the role the first day yeah. of reading. And somebody said, I wonder who could play the president of the dairy. And I said, gee, I've been working with a guy who I think would be great, Arthur Q. Bryan. Well, everybody knew Arthur and agreed. And it was just one of those things. They might have hired somebody else, but I just happened to mention Arthur's name. Or they might have thought of him. And he did that, then he began to do a few other roles, then eventually Don created Dr. Gamble for him, and of course Doc Gamble was He's a perfect role. wonderful character. Yeah. They used to have great fun with him. It's time for Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Sundays through Thursdays, NBC brings you Fibber, McGee, and Molly transcribed. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Ralph Goodman and directed by Max Hutto. Before we hear tonight's story, Fibber and Molly would like you to listen to this. Folks, I'd venture to say that most of you know what real trouble, sickness, and accidents can bring a family, especially if it's Dad who gets ill or injured. Not only are medical expenses budget-breaking, but if Dad's salary check is cut off when he's unable to work, things can be rough and tough for the whole family. We're talking, of course, about the Prudential Insurance Company's new income protection and hospital and surgical expense plans. These new plans of Prudential's are outstanding in the field of sickness and accident insurance. They've got certain protective features few other plans have. So, friends, to get the facts on how you can meet the high cost of sickness and accidents for your family, we've got a folder we want you to have. It'll give you an idea how the Prudential can tailor sickness and accident plans to fit your family needs. Just write your name and address on a card with the word sickness and accident. And send it to Fibber McGee and Molly, Box 1212. Newark, New Jersey. That's box 1212, Newark, New Jersey. Do it today, huh? It's important for you and for your family. The charity committee of the Wistful Vista Elks Club is going to take over the operation of Walt's Malt Shop at 14th and Oak for the weekend. Right now, the restaurant's closed for the night, and only the waitress is there as the phone rings. Walt's Malt Shop. Uh, yes, this is Cora speaking. And if this is Prince Ali Khan, I'm to be sorry, but we're closed for the night. I, I just locked up, pulled down the shades. I know it's you, Walt. How many guys are there that sound like a wounded moose over the phone? Huh? 
Yeah, Miss McGee and some of the other wives are due here any minute. I'm going to show them how to wait tables and... Oh, there's somebody at the door now. I guess that's them. Yeah. Okay, I'll... I'll watch it. Have a nice weekend at the lake. Goodbye. Oh, oh worry, Wart. You'd think this was a stork club, the way he... Oh, it's you again. Yes, ma'am. Everything all right? Look, officer, I appreciate the protection, but you don't need to check every ten minutes. We haven't been held up since Walt took this place over and word got around how business is. Well, you never can tell, ma'am. There's always a first time, and it's my duty as an officer. I know. You told me that the last time. Now, look, I promise you, any time we get robbed, I won't call any cop but you. Okay? Well, thank you, ma'am. I'd appreciate that. I just joined the force, and this is my first beat, you, you see, and know, I... You I kind of figured that. You did? Yeah. Something about the way you walk. Oh? In and out of that door every ten minutes and say, everything all right, ma'am? Oh. <laughs> just kidding, officer. Yeah. I really appreciate the protection. Hello, Cora. Here oh. we are. Hi, Cora. Oh, here comes my friends. Now, come on, girls. Time's a waste. Well, good night, ma'am. Anytime you need me, just... Okay. Thanks, Hi, officer. <laughs> so much to it, Cora. To see you wait tables, it looks so simple. Yes. Oh, nothing to it. But you're so confident with it, Cora. <laughs> I'll dump a bowl of soup down some customer's collar tomorrow just to sure as heck. Doesn't everybody? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I'll be here to show you how to wipe him off, so don't worry. Now, <laughs> now let's run through the order routine again, girls. Yeah. I'll call him out and you translate. Now, I'm going fast. I hope I remember. There's so many... Mrs. McGee, draw one. Cup of coffee. Mrs. Bradley, BT on. Ah, uh, bacon and tomato on toast. Good. Uh, Mrs. Toops, sweep the kitchen. Bowl of chili. Mrs. McGee, hold the flaps, make it a retread. Never mind the wheat cakes, make that a waffle. Mrs. Bradley, Adam and Eve on a raft. A poached eggs on toast. Wreck them. Oh, that's to uh, make it scramble. Swell. <laughs> we did it. Fine, you'll be great tomorrow. Now, for the next step. This, girls, is our coffee urn. Oh, sure. It looks like it. Walt picked it up at a bankruptcy sale of a restaurant that opened around 1890, so you can see it's been used. <laughs> now, notice the initials scratched on the side. DJB. Diamond Jim Brady. Ooh. Oh, Cora, you're yes. kidding. Yes, he and I are the only two people who know how to use it. And since Jim's gone, pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'll show you. You take a cup and saucer. You place it under here. Yeah. Now, this gadget over here, you push up. This one down. This one sideways. And then turn on the spout. Step back and yell, quick, somebody, get them off. <laughs> See, that's all there is to it. Now, everybody get a cup, line up, and we'll try it, okay? Oh, yes. <laughs> There's more fun with the McGee's shortly. Elvia Allman voiced Cora. Yeah, I did a lot of character things on those. And if you ask me, I couldn't tell you any of them. Mm -hmm. You know, they all just kind of run together. We did this big thing for about the Fibber McGee show with, out at the Spearvac. Mm -hmm. 
the writer was there, and I went up to him before, and I said, what did I do on the Pyramid <laughs> He had all the names, yeah. he knew everything I had done, but that's, they all kind of go together, you know. Well, when you're so busy, but just whenever they needed someone, they mm -hmm. needed that character, character or the characters yeah. you had yeah. developed. Yeah. In later years, that was a great show for Reunion of Radio Friends, wasn't right. it? Right, right. <laughs> Always glad to go and see everybody you knew. Yeah. Because TV changed it all. My, so many new people, actually, all coming out from New York and Chicago and where things are happening did out here. Did you have to audition for most of these parts, or did it finally come to the point where someone said, well, get me an Elvia Allman type, and they yeah, said, well, no, get Elvia Allman. No, actually, in radio, I don't remember auditioning much. Mm -hmm. There weren't that many people here doing it. You know, it got bigger as people came out from the East and stage people and mm -hmm. so on. But they were just so glad to have somebody who could do different parts that in radio, I don't remember auditioning that much. And Mr. Wimple is going to be dishwasher, you know, and McGee is going to be chef. I hope Mort can get the bicarbonate concession. We'll be rich. Oh, <laughs> Mabel. Oh, well, come on now, girls. Let's get back to work. Now, the next thing I'm going to show you is how to... Actually, wait on the customer. Oh, good. Splendid. This will be fun. <laughs> well, the nice customers are easy to handle, and they're the ones that leave the tips, too, the big tips. So we'll skip those and concentrate on how to handle the grouchy characters, of which 89 and one-half percent eat right here at Walt's Malt Shop. Oh, <laughs> You know the kind. They bang on their glass for servers. They complain that the eggs are cold. Orange juice is hot, and they bang on their glass some more, and then... Hi, it's me. Oh, hello, oh, dearie. Hi, Feb. Speak of the devil, I was just talking about you, Mr. McGee. Oh, yeah? Uh, would you mind sitting there at that table so I can show the girls how to wait on a customer <laughs> of your type? <laughs> oh, now, Cora, McGee isn't the kind now, of... Now, now, kiddo, don't be embarrassed. I mean, gee whiz, if your husband happens to be the type of customer that he sort of brings out the best in every waitress... Sort of makes her want to give him the finest possible service. That's not the kind Cora had in mind, though. Just show me where to sit and I'll be happy to help. Because when I start chefing this operation tomorrow, I want you girls to be good waitresses. And the waitresses... Gee, Willikers, Cora, I've been banging on this glass for 20 minutes now. See what I mean, girls? How long do I have to keep doing this? I'm tired. Well, I just want the girls to get used to it. Huh? Are you conditioned now, girls, so it doesn't bother you? Oh, yes, oh, I think I am. Stop now, Cora. Okay, Mr. McGee, cut! Ugh. Oh, boy, my arm is tired. And hey, look, it's after midnight. Oh, my dear, is it that late? Well, we better all get a good rest for tomorrow because we'll... Oh, now who the heck's calling up here at this hour? If that's Walt, oh, hello! Oh, yeah, yes, he's here. Just a minute, Doctor. Uh, for you, Mr. McGee, Dr. Gamble. Dr. Gamble? At this time of night? Hello, what's up, Bulge Bottom? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so uh, I mean, uh, Doctor, this is rather a late hour for one to be phoning one, isn't it, Doctor? Hmm? Oh, yeah. Mm hmm. Oh, I see. Oh. Well, if that's the official order from the high exalted ruler, I guess we have no other alternative, George. Yeah, I'll meet you here. Goodbye, Doc. What was that all about? I inventory. Henry Lester, the grand exalted ruler, says we've got to take inventory of the food on hand. Right now. So we'll know how much we sell over the weekend. Now? Tonight? Has to be tonight. 
Start using the stuff tomorrow morning. Well, in that case, school's out. Class dismissed. Now you go on home with Mabel, kiddo. I'll be home as soon as I can. Yeah, you sure. Come on, Mom. Oh, uh, well. I'll, I'll see you girls tomorrow now. Now you'll be here at 9 a.m. I shall be here, Cora. <laughs> Don't worry about the joint, Cora. I and Doc will lock it up. Well, now get home early, McGee, and don't get in any trouble, please. Trouble? How can I get in any trouble? I don't know, but don't. <laughs> okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. Phil, you started writing for the Fibber McGee and Molly show about when? 1943. 1943? Mm-hmm. And wrote till 1956. I wrote, we did the half-hour show... Then we went to a quarter hour, five times a week. Want another burger, Doc? No, thanks, Chef. I'm stuck. Okay, I'll turn the griddle off. There. <laughs> Boy, this was a great idea of yours, Ducky. This midnight snack was great. What'd you tell the girls? Oh, inventory, I said. <laughs> inventory. <laughs> Two of us members got to take inventory. <laughs> you know how Molly is. Yeah. If I'd have said Doc and I are going to have some hamburgers... She'd have said you'll mess up the restaurant, or you'll make yourself sick yeah, or something. Yeah, and Cora'd have killed us both after she had the grill all clean and everything. <laughs> Don't get in any trouble now, Molly says. <laughs> <laughs> I says, how can I get in trouble hanging around? Hey, hey, what are you doing? Ringing up no sale. Oh. <laughs> that was the best deal on four hamburgers oh, now, I ever wait, had. wait, I think we ought to pay for them. Huh? After all, it came out of our own food supply that the Elks ordered for tomorrow. It's for charity. We ought Oh, to... yeah. Well, I guess you're right at that. You got change for a five? I got a five, but Let's I got no... Let's see now. I got three singles here. A ten and some change. Well, All right, you mugs. Step away from that cash register and get your hands up. What? Stick up. And in a cop's uniform, too. Now, look, bud. I'm a police officer, and huh? I've been watching this place. You two hooligans robbing that nice girl that works so hard to hey, make a living hey. with this place? Hey, now, well, wait, wait a minute. I'll wait probably minute. get a promotion for this night's work you when I get you to the station. You're oh, going to... We'll say goodnight to Fibber and Molly in a moment. There's music in the air on NBC with singing favorites Dinah Shore and Frank Sinatra. Dinah gives a lift to the day's end when she takes a song that might be old, new, borrowed, or blue and gives it her own unique version on the Dinah Shore Show. You'll enjoy the Dinah Shore Show heard each Wednesday evening over NBC Radio. And in a completely different manner, Frank Sinatra combines his talents with a bit of easygoing chatter, spins a platter or two, and then steps Mike's side to sing. Yes, with Dinah Shore and Frank Sinatra, there's always music in the air over NBC Wednesday evenings. Although he doesn't sing, Groucho Marx makes the laugh meter jump. As quizmaster of that wonderful laugh show, You Bet Your Life, Groucho makes Wednesday evening a night to look forward to. Join Groucho and enjoy Life with a Laugh and play You Bet Your Life, heard on NBC Radio Wednesday evenings. And remember, NBC leads the rest with the best in radio entertainment. Seventy-nine Wistful Vista, Molly McGee speaking. Police station. You what? Have a man there who says he's my husband? He can't be. My husband is with Dr. Gamble. Yes, they're taking inventory at Walt's Mall Shop. Huh? Oh, that's where you caught these fellas. Cooking hamburgers? Hmm. Well, I'll drop over there tomorrow and see if I know them. Just lock them up. Bye. Well, I guess I'd better go down and get them. They'll catch their death of cold in those drafty cells. 
of all the silly. Oh, pardon me. Good night, all. Fibber McGee and Molly is an NBC Radio Network production transcribed with Bill Thompson as the policeman and Arthur Q. Bryan as Dr. Gamble. Cora is played by Elvia Allman, Mabel Toops by Mary Jane Croft, and Mrs. Bradley by Myra Marsh. Well, what do you say if we give them a couple of days to get Waltz under control? Then, stop around Sunday and see how it's going. This is John Wall saving a seat at the counter for you Sunday night. Join the great Gildersleeve and all his friends tonight on the NBC Radio Network. This is the story of the West that few people hear. The stories of our everyday struggles, shameful acts and triumphs. This is the Veiled West. <laughs> it's a shame your dog's sense of smell isn't as keen as a werewolf figures. Hey, now just a minute there. You can't talk to... Silence, Thrall. Don't speak to the mayor that way. That's better. What I meant was that the ranch was sold to another werewolf. They're surrounding the city now, Amos. I thought we had this under control. Dr. Eli Decker. It's wonderful to meet you, Happy. Tell me, is the Coyote Crossing Ranch a friendly place for us? Well, it's full of us. Even the lady who owns it, actually. Why don't you come down and meet everyone? Do you need a place to stay in town? Don't worry about us, Sheriff. I promise. We take care to make sure the town is safe. I'm sorry we bothered you, Miss Vera. If you ever need anything, you send someone for us and we'll come running. Well? Werewolves. Every one of them. Just like the other two ranchers. I have a feeling I can arrange something unfortunate. Listen to the story of the Old West that you've never heard before. Visit theveiledwest.com. You were better known as McGee than you were as Jim Jordan. Did folks still call you Mr. McGee? Yes, those who don't know me do. And the only people that don't are those that you know, that are no normal. I have a great picture of you standing at the microphone and Marion Jordan seated at the microphone, and the caption under it says, Molly sits at the table, but Fibber, who is always keyed up, prefers to stand at the mic. Do you remember being keyed up for the broadcast? No. That was in a Saturday Evening Post article around 1949. Well, did they spell McGee correctly? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. It's a strange thing, but... I saw a lot of people that came from vaudeville much later than we did, you know, that became big on radio, and they were frightened to death of that microphone. It was hard for us to understand that because we grew up with it from the beginning. It's time for Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Sundays through Thursdays, NBC brings you Fibber, McGee, and Molly transcribed. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Ralph Goodman and directed by Max Hutto. First, here are some words from our two friends that we'll let you listen in on. 
McGee, I watched a little red-haired tyke buying his weekly supply of candy today. Yeah? <laughs> Two cents for licorice whips, a penny for jawbreakers. In May of 1955, Fibber McGee and Molly was airing Sundays through Thursdays on NBC. When he grows up... I know, he'll be able to balance his checkbook. More than that. He'll be able to handle the kind of problem a lot of folks with limited incomes face today. I didn't write for them one monitor. I went, at that point, it was time for me to get into television and thought the fun was all gone out of radio and most of the money. By that time, for the writers, anyhow. Well, you must have been, if you were writing the Fibber McGee and Molly things for radio in the 50s, you were probably one of the last original radio writers. I stayed in there just as long as I could, Chuck. I didn't want to leave radio because it was a lot of fun. On Sunday, May 22nd, the gang was back on the air tending to Walt's malt shop. If you've been around Wistful Vista in the past few days, you've noticed that the Elks Club has taken over the operation of Walt's malt shop and hamburger joint for the weekend. The food has been donated and the profits go to charity. Come on in, let's have a burger and see how business is. Two burgers with. Two burgers with. Gotcha. Side of fries. Side of fries. One order of genuine southern style beef hash, please. One gambler's special. Gotcha. Oh, chef. Yeah. What happened to the bacon tomato on toast hold the french fries? Coming up. Take it easy. Phew, boy, the way them women throw the orders at you. Even my own wife yelling at me. My gosh, I only got two heads, or er, two hands. Well, I'm ready to go, Mr. McGee. With our advertising campaign, this should bring in lots of business. Yeah, hold on a sec, Wimp. I gotta get some more hamburgers on the fire. There, now let's see how you look. That sandwich board sign isn't gonna be too heavy for you, is it? Heavy? Mm-hmm. Mm, don't be silly. I'm powerful, Mr. McGee. I've got uh, strength I haven't even used yet. Good. Now all you have to do is go down the street there in the front of the carnival. Ham sandwich! Ham sandwich! Walk back and forth and let everybody Chef. read our ad on there. Yeah? What happened to my bacon tomato on? Coming up. Because once they get a look at that sign that I painted, they'll mob this place and we'll do more business than we Coming ever... Coming up? McGee, you've been saying that for the past half hour. Now, my customer's getting... What are you made up for, Mr. Wimple? Well, I'm going... He's to... our advertising department, kiddo. Turn around, Wimp. Show her what it says on the sign. Hurry one, hurry one, hurry one. Those aren't ones, they're exclamation points, Molly. Oh, hurry, hurry, hurry. Yeah. Two hours special starting at noon. All you can eat for a dollar? That's it, kiddo. I just cleared it with the Elks Club Charity Committee. They gave me the okay. But all you can eat for a dollar, that seems... Look, we already made more than we expected to running this place over the weekend. We got nothing to lose. Either I guessed wrong and we lose a few bucks today, or... I guessed right, and we finish in a blaze of glory. I voted for the idea, Mrs. McGee. I, I like to live dangerously. Well, I hope it works out. Where's Mr. Wimple going with this sign of yours? That's the big idea, kiddo. There's a lot of new customers in the neighborhood today. Open that back door a minute, Wimp. And listen, Molly. Oh, for goodness sake. Sounds like... Yep. Carnival. I noticed him setting up in that vacant lot down the street when I came in this morning. Carnival people are always looking for a good, inexpensive place to eat. Well, who isn't? It's getting close to lunchtime right now. Quarter twelve. So off you go, Wimp. Go get him, boys. Sick em. Oh, I'll get him. All right, folks. Step right up. Don't miss the chance of a lifetime. Get this sensational outfit while small shop today. Only... <laughs> Boy, look at him go. Boy, he just loves that job. Yes, now talking about how you think of everything, what about that bacon tomato sandwich I've been waiting for? Oh, my gosh, I did it again. What? Burned your toast. 
Quick, get it out before it catches on fire like the last oh, time. Oh, dear. Is that what's been holding up that sandwich? Yeah, every time the toast is ready, Cora yells. What happened to those burgers not having sand? Yeah, and every time I take a look at her, yours gets burned. Make me some toast, huh? Please? Okay, I will. I've got to get these burgers off the fire and stir the french fries. Gee whiz, if I thought this chef's job was going to be so complicated, I'd have taken busboy like they offered it to me in the first One place. One for the sandwich, please. One dog. Two eggs over easy, side of sausage, chocolate sundae, stack of weeds. What happened to my two burgers with the ham sand and Ms. McGee? Your customer just left. You got tired of waiting? Good. Move over, dearie. I'll help you. Hand me the plates. You get the burgers. I'll get the ham sand if you'll hand me those pickles. Oh, the toast is burning again. <laughs> There's more fun with the McGee's shortly. Men, could this be you four years from today? A man skilled in the sort of technical knowledge that can pay him huge dividends the rest of his life? A man with the kind of experience that produces experts? A man with the confidence and advantages of world travel and a nation's respect and esteem? I repeat, does this sound like you four years from today? Well, it can be you in the United States Air Force. Yes, men, you'll go places faster as an airman in the United States Air Force. If you qualify, you'll receive the finest technical training from top experts of the country. And you'll earn while you learn. There are more than 400 different subjects in which you may train. Yes, that's right. 400 different subjects preparing you for such growing fields as radar, medicine, personnel, meteorology, and many more. So don't delay. See your nearest Air Force recruiter right away and get the facts about your future as an airman. Remember, you'll go places faster. Grilled cheese on. Grilled cheese on. Put some more toast on, dearie. Yeah, uh, look, Molly, everything's under control now. You don't, you don't have to stay back what? here. What soup du jour, please? Soup du jour, coming up. What'd you say, McGee? I said I can take it from here. You don't have to stay in this hot kitchen. Oh, you're so jammed up. You go ahead and wait tables like the other girls. Help Mrs. Spradley out. She don't know what she's doing anyway. Gosh, your boy. Hello there, Johnny. It's me, reporting for duty, as promised. Swell, old-timer. Here's my assistant for the noon rush, Molly, so you can get back to your tables before the mob starts pouring in here. Mob? You're being a little optimistic, ain't you, son? Huh? I mean, word about your cooking has gotten all over town by now, and unless we're flooded with strangers from Never Never Land, or else we start giving the stuff away... You're right both times, Mr. Oldtimer. We are giving it away. A new idea of McGee's. Don't you worry. We'll make money on the deal. You'll see. And the strangers from Never Never Land are being informed right now by Mr. Wimple. He's over at the carnival, walking up and down with a sandwich sign that says, Hurry to Walt's Malt Shop. All you can eat for a dollar. Oh, this is it. Oh, there they come. Here they come. Here they come. Heavenly days, what a mob. I bet you will clean up, boy. I'm off oh, the dog face, boy. I want to eat. Oh, oh. Hey, looks like you're out pulling the whole dang carnival, Johnny. The Indian rubber man, the dog face boy, the bearded lady. Who's that Forrest talking to? That's a fire eater, daughter. I seen him last year. I don't care if you are the great flamo. Stop eating the candles off the table. Ah. <laughs> Boy, oh boy, oh boy, there must be 40 of them. That's 40 bucks, and we'll clean up with this idea. Mike. I hope you're right, McGee. I'd better grab some menus and get to work. Cora and Mrs. Bradley are smart. Uh-oh, look who just came in. I'll go wait on him. Oh, my gosh, the carnival fat man. Yeah, that's him. See what it says on his robe? Two-ton Tony. Holy smoke, look at the size of that mountain. He's five times fatter than Doc Gamble. 
We told Doc to eat down the street. Hey, looks hungry, too. I hope Molly talks him out of the expensive stuff. Tells him the cooking is lousy or something because of that. There are T-bones and a dozen eggs, sunny side. Uh-oh. A pair of... A, a dozen? A stack of wheat cakes, a stack of waffles, and a bowl of coffee with cream. With, oh, my gosh. Is that his idea of lunch? No, he just said to bring him that right away, dear. He said then he'd look at the menu and order. Oh. Turn that griddle down a little, old-timer. Okay, Johnny. Looks like we're caught up. Good. Now, we're ready for more orders, girls. Okay, table one. Cora. Three new customers. Three burgers with. Three burgers with. Okay, table two. Mrs. Spradley. Two new customers. One ham, Sam, one burger. Ham, Sam, and a burger. Okay, table three. Molly. Same customer. Six more burgers, three malts, and one chocolate fudge marshmallow sundae. Uh-oh. Two-ton Tony's still stuffing in the stuff, huh? All the whipped cream. All the whipped cream? Put it in a container. Says he'll eat it on his way back to the carnival. Oh, well, thank goodness he's going back to the carnival. I got you. Coming up. Hand me those two burgers, old-timer, and the next time I come up with a brilliant idea, will you do me a favor? Just kick me right in the middle of the dad ratted toast is burning again. Boy, what a day! Brother, I'm bushed. I'm beat down like a flower bed in a hailstorm. Oh, me too, kids. Whew, I'm darned. Uh, gracious, I've never been so fatigued. Yeah, I pooped. What a mob. Wildest crowd I ever saw. And did they eat? Oh, oh, I tell you, the way they went at it, you'd think food was going to be declared illegal tomorrow. Especially that two-ton Tony. Oh. I never saw anything like it. The amount of food that man consumed at a two-hour sitting is just unbelievable. Two hours? Was he in here the whole two hours? Right to the second. Got up every half hour and walked out the front door and back in again for exercise and sat down for more. (laughs) (laughs) Wait till you see what he gave me, though, when he left. Gave you? Ought to be a $50 tip for all the food he ate. Hardly that, Cora. No, he gave me the dollar, and he said he was grateful, and he wanted me to have this. A picture? Autographed picture of himself and his brother's. They have a three-man act. The ten-ton triplets, they call it. Three-man act? See? All three of them look exactly alike. Same hairstyle, same mustache, same bathrobe. Well, (laughs) heavenly days. That walk out the front door and back every half hour? Oh, no. Yeah. Honey, you don't think him and them sneaky brothers of his changed places and... Oh, have we been took. Oh, agony. We'll say goodnight to Fibber and Molly in a moment. Looking for a sure way to brighten the daytime hours and speed your chores along? Just tune to NBC for the best in weekday listening, both morning and afternoon. NBC morning highlights include Mary Margaret McBride, who chats with you in her friendly and informal manner about people and places of interest, along with fascinating little everyday items that will bring out a smile as sparkling as a glint from a diamond. So make it a bright, happy habit to listen to Mary Margaret McBride each weekday morning on NBC Radio. Other favorites on NBC's morning highlights include Strike It Rich, the show with a heart, the phrase that pays a fast and funny quiz show with Ted Brown. And in the afternoon, you'll have an opportunity to visit with your longtime radio friends, Just Plain Bill, Stella Dallas, Young Witter Brown, and for a refreshing change, listen to NBC's Hotel for Pets. 
For bright, sunny morning and afternoon listening, you'll find that NBC leads the rest with the best in radio entertainment. The popularity of the series was such that in June, Broadcasting Magazine announced that Fibber McGee and Molly would debut in a subsequent daytime program. Hey, Molly, I'm home. You still up? Yes, I'm waiting for the financial report. Well, how'd we do? I just finished checking out with Henry Lester at the Elks Club. Our restaurant venture, my dear, made $312.80 for the charity fund. Oh, that's wonderful. Even after the 10-ton Tony deal? Yep. Some of the Elks went over to the carnival and explained that this deal was all for charity, so the 10-ton triplets apologized and paid for everything they ate. $63 worth. How about that? Isn't that nice? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, who explained it to them? Oh, just some brother Elks of mine. Chief of police, mayor's bodyguard, H-bomb Hunsky, the wrestler. Just Elks. Oh. Good night. Good night, all. Fibber McGee and Molly is an NBC Radio Network production transcribed with Bill Thompson as the old-timer and Wallace Wimple, Elvia Allman as Cora, and Myra Marsh as Mrs. Bradley. Ladies, is your girdle uncomfortable? Well, tomorrow night, Mr. McGee finds out just how miserable they can make one. This is John Wall saying, don't miss this drama tomorrow on Fibber McGee and Molly. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. That must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow! In studio with us tonight in Los Angeles, we have Shirley Mitchell, whose credits include being Alice Darling on the old Fibber McGee and Molly program, also telephone operator Mabel on Jack Benny's radio and TV show, and uh, Shirley Whirley on Joan Davis and Rudy Valley, plus Leela Ransom, the Southern Widow, on the Great Gildersleeve. Good to have you with us, Shirley. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And also Jack Crucian, who was just telling me... Who? Who? I have no idea. (laughs) The man has no credentials whatsoever. Only 50 years in this business. Mm -hmm. When will you have the the 50-year mark, Jack? 50 years, September of next year. September of 88. Who has uh, covered some uh, some great ground. Uh, you, by the way, might be... And some with rotten him. ground, too. Well, all all ground is good ground if the paycheck doesn't bounce. <laughs> You're on uh, Webster as uh, Papadopoulos, right? Papa Papadopoulos. Yeah, right. and also you've got uh, 
Uh, your work in Rags to Riches. You were nominated for Academy Award, I believe, in The Apartment. Is That's that correct? Right. Correct. And uh, some great... Uh, what have I done lately? Thanks to the big weekend, McGee put on a few pounds. He took a trip to the men's store, where he ran into a conniving clerk voiced by Jack Crucian. It's time for Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Sundays through Thursdays, NBC brings you Fibber, McGee, and Molly transcribed. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Len Levinson and directed by Max Hutto. Notice the way that Mr. McGee explains the following point to Molly. Molly, how much do you suppose a college education is worth to a young man nowadays? I wouldn't know, McGee, but I expect a lot. Well, I'll tell you how much it's worth. It's worth the difference between what he can earn with it and what he can earn without it. Well, that certainly clears it up, dearie. Why don't you come right to the point and say that Prudential's education plan is a wonderful way for every mother and father to guarantee money for their children's education. Isn't that what you were getting at? Yep. And what better way to prepare for those college years than to start right now? Isn't that what you had in mind? Yep. And even if Dad isn't here when the time comes for the children to go off to school, you can be sure with a Prudential education plan that the money will be there to pay tuition, room and board, books, clothing, and all that. Isn't that what you were going to say? Yep. Well, <laughs> you sure were getting off to a slow start. Yep. And all else aside, folks, I don't know of a better idea than to begin right now, little by little, building a Prudential insurance program for your children's education that will do the very things we've been talking about. Why don't you get in touch with your Prudential agent and get all the details? Yep. Mr. McGee took a look at himself in the mirror this morning, the full-length mirror, and he said to himself in horror, Holy smoke! Is all that me? Boy, oh boy, oh boy, you've got to do something about that waistline, McGee. Ugh! Keep letting yourself go like this, Chubby, and you'll be as big around as Doc Gamble. So, being a man of action who doesn't want to get as big around the middle as Doc Gamble, he's now in the Bonton department store, headed for athletic equipment. Attention, men. Streamline your physique. Take inches off your middle with the new Atomic Age Streamliner belt. Hmm, belt, huh? Uh, excuse me, champ. Over here. You speaking to me, bud? Yeah, I see you're interested in the Atomic Age Streamliner belt. The belt that packs a paunch so nobody knows you got one. Oh, no. I, I, I wouldn't be interested. Oh, no, that's not for me. I, I got a friend, though, that he'd, he'd be too embarrassed to come down here himself. I, I, I might take a look uh, for him. Well, now, I don't know about your friend, but from looking at the belt on you, I'd say one of these Streamliner belts is just what the doctor ordered. Uh, here, take a look at him. Oh, heck, is that what they are? Looks just like a corset. Oh, don't use that way, champ. Huh? These are exactly the very same construction like them wide belts the motorcycle boys wear. Only you wear these inside. It's the only difference. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Motorcycle boys, yeah. Uh, what size pants belt you wear, champ? Uh, the name's McGee. Uh, 38. I see. A guy your size and built oughtn't to wear a pants belt that big, you know. A 32 is closer to the right proportion, for your height, that is. Ha! I haven't been able to wear a size 32 since the year of the same name. Oh, this atomic age streamline could draw you up to a 32 less than three minutes. 
It could. 32 waist? And look like you took off 32 pounds. How about my height? Optional illusion. Dinner guys look tall and natch. Oh. Yeah, yeah, now that you mention it, they do. Well, what you say? No obligation? <laughs> the very idea. Huh? Here, step right this way. Oh. And uh, now, if you will just remove your coat and pants, you could wear this belt over, but uh, that would make it hard getting to your pocketbook and stuff. <laughs> yeah, sure. Let me hang up your coat. Yeah. And uh, now I'll take your trousers. Uh, thank you. You know, I'm just trying this contraption on for a friend, you understand? Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Uh, now, if you will just sit down. <laughs> That's right. And uh, put your feet together. Fine. I will pull this size 32 up, and uh, we will see how it fits around. Uh, uh, stand up now, please. The uh, uh, oh, middle. Oh, you think they put it? Zipper on these. <gasps> oh, yeah. well, they have, champ. And now I gotta try and get it closed. All right, now, brace yourself. <clears throat> Inhale, champ. Inhale. Tuck it in. In where? Uh, Everything's full. <clears throat> what was that? Oh, just close the zipper, champ. That's all. Oh. Say. Get a look at yourself in the mirror. What a figure. Flat, boy, flat. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> hey, you know what? I'm going to tell my friend, and he probably will be in here for one of these. In fact, I might decide to buy one myself. Mister, this is a $12.98 item, but for introduction purposes, I'm going to let you have it for $6.98, a saving of almost 50%. $6.98, eh? Here's your pants, champ. Reach in the fish seven bucks out of the wallet, eh? <laughs> Go on, you can't lose. Skinny... Well, oh, okay. Let me see. Here you are, five and two mm. ones. Hmm? I'll go get you your change. You just climb in your clothes. Oh, boy, I had to talk fast that time. Thought I was cooked when the handle on the zipper pulled off. Wait till he tries to get out of that thing. Sheesh. Boy, I'm glad this is my last day in this town. My start was at CBS Radio here in Hollywood, doing a sustaining show, we used to call those. It meant you didn't... That's right. Non-sponsored, right? right. Non-sponsored. Yeah. It also meant you didn't get paid in those days. Oh, really? $3? No. 1938. I got gore. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it was 13 weeks. A wonderful experience because I got to play a different foreign character every week. And at the age of 16, that was pretty exciting. How about me. that? That's pretty, This kid here, are you kidding? She was a baby. Yeah. I was at least I was a graduate of high school. With the best in radio entertainment. And you still don't want to tell me what was the matter with you this afternoon. No. If you don't mind, kiddo, I'd just as soon rather not discuss it. Please? Okay, okay. I'm not nosy. We'll forget it. Thanks. One other question, though. Hmm? What do you want me to do with the thing I found upstairs that the label says... Atomic Age Streamliner Belt. The belt that packs a paunch. Want me to throw it out? No. No. Save it for me. I'll take it downtown tomorrow and strangle a salesman with it. Good night. Good night, all.
Fibber McGee and Molly is an NBC Radio Network production. NBC would continue to air Fibber McGee and Molly in serial format until March 23, 1956. After that, Jim and Marion joined Monitor in short vignettes. Hey, here's an interesting article in the paper, Molly. It says this is National Dog Week. Well, if I see any dogs on the street, I'll wish them many happy returns. <laughs> I might have known you'd make some whimsical crack like that. <laughs> but I, for one, think that dog week is a pretty important thing. The noble dog is man's best friend, you know. Well, the one that's been digging in my tulip bed is no friend of mine. But radio drama was dying, and so was Marion. we buy a dog, the answer is no. I have enough on my hands just taking care of In 1958, tests found that she had terminal cancer. She'd continue to work as long as possible. The show, uh, as Fibber McGee and Molly, as a half-hour radio show, went off the air in about 1954, didn't 54, it? 54, I think. Yeah. And then we did a 15-minute show across the board for one year, and then we did Monitor for about three years. Yeah. In fact, when Marion became ill in 1960, in February, this cancer was discovered. The contract was made out for three more years of Monitor at that time. We never finished signing it. Well, that was one of the great losses to radio, certainly. But you were with NBC for all those years, weren't you, Jim? We were with NBC for over 30 years. Phil Leslie remained the writer until the end. I wasn't eager to get into television because it didn't look like it was going to be as much fun. As a writer, I was particularly fortunate on the Fibber show because we had a, we had a thing there with Don Quinn as the writer who had... Uh, founded the show with Marion mm -hmm. and Jim back in the middle 30s. And then when I joined Don in 43, I kind of fell heir to the same respect from the actors and so forth. We had a thing there where there was a minimum of interference with the script from anybody. The writers wrote it, Marion and Jim read it, and that was largely it. I knew that when I went into television, everybody had their hand in it because it was yeah. that much bigger. There were cameramen and lights and film editors and so forth. I was right. Television was never quite as much fun for me as radio was. Marion Jordan died at her home on April 7, 1961. The couple left an indelible mark on the comedy world, influencing many husband and wife sitcoms that came after. Jim Jordan popped up on TV occasionally and was an active member of Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters for decades after. We lost Marion in 1961 and then there were no more new um, Fibber and Molly performances on radio. No, couldn't be. The great sounds from 79 Wistful Vista, though, have continued to create pictures in our memories. And today, across the country, Jim and Marion Jordan are still bringing pleasure to millions of listeners whenever one of those great Johnson's Wax programs is rerun. I believe the fact that they were not run and that I didn't, after Marion passed away, I didn't break my back trying to keep it alive. I wanted mm -hmm. to do things, but I never could do what I wanted to do. And I think the fact that that went on for all these years, which is about 10 years now, and, and the shows hadn't been done for since 1953, actually, mm -hmm. the reason that all that has stayed away all this time is, is what's making it, well, uh, popular is the only word, now. I think that's what's bringing this resurgence at this point. In other words, if I'd have kept going all the time, maybe there wouldn't be this interest in it now. I have that feeling about it anyway. Well, I think the quality of the broadcasts stands up. Well, it and, does. Uh, yeah. And that's what 
makes it uh, well received today by a whole new generation of people who never uh, before uh, exactly. imagined Fibber McGee and Molly. Well, the strange thing to me is that from the, when all no radio nostalgia, the golden age of radio, you get the feeling, I would imagine that people get the feeling, the only thing that was in the golden days of radio that was going on at that time was Fibber McGee and Molly because it's always mentioned. I, and, mm -hmm. that, and that is strange to me because Boy, we had some great radio shows. Yeah, but you were one of the great well, radio shows. Well, yeah, we were shows. only one, though, but yeah. Benny and <laughs> Burns and Allen and Bergen mm -hmm. and Red Skelton, those shows were just great. And that's strange that there's something about it that makes people, I think it's that word. Well, I, I, <laughs> well it's, a, it's a great word, but you see, you were unique to radio. Jim Jordan passed away at the age of 91 on April Fool's Day, 1988. With the weekend at the malt shop over, we're gearing up for summer. We've spent the past three episodes of Breaking Walls in the mid to late 1950s. We're about to go back 10 years in time. This is Orson Welles broadcasting. On your mark, get set, go. The mark is Sunday, June 30th, 1946. Get set for two tremendous explosions and go. Well, you might as well go to the hills or maybe the moon would be safer. After they drop that thing at 5.30 tonight, we may all go to glory. There's a widespread fear, you know, among the, those who mutter of chain reactions and among those who mutter about the chains of reaction, political reaction... There's a deadly certainty that after they drop that thing at midnight, that thing called OPA, we'll all of us be going to the hot place in a sleigh with bells on down a steep, greased chute. On your mark, get set. Get set for the two big explosions. Ladies and gentlemen, the element of suspense is so vital to our story tonight that our sponsors, the makers of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, are omitting their usual commercial message during the intermission between the acts so that our play will go uninterrupted from spooky start to spooky finish. Therefore, let's give Ken Roberts his 45-second opportunity right now to extol the merits of that blended, splendid... Uh, Ken? Of that blended, splendid Pabst Blue Ribbon. Those two words tell the whole flavor story. You see, every single drop of Pabst Blue Ribbon is the happy result of blending the full flavor. Next time on Breaking Walls, we pick up where we left off all the way back in episode 79 and tell the story of Orson Welles' radio career from the beginning of World War II through the end of Radio's Peak. Travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg, as well as several articles from Broadcasting Magazine, Radio and TV Mirror, and Sponsor Magazine. On the interview front, Parley Bear and Harry Bartell were with Spurvac. For more information, please go to Spurvac.com. Elvia Allman, Jim Jordan, Jim Jordan Jr., Phil Leslie, Willard Waterman, and Don Wilson were with Chuck Shaden 
hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Jim Jordan was also with John Dunning for his 71 KNUS program in Denver on May 29, 1982. Don Quinn was interviewed in Hawaii by Owen Cunningham while on vacation in 1951. And John Gibson and Jim Jordan were with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran from WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Here are their full chats at goldenage-wtic.org. Selected music featured in today's episode was Caravan by Gordon Jenkins, Goodbye Montana Part 1 by George Winston, I Forgot to Remember to Forget by Elvis Presley, and Route 66 by Nat King Cole. Special thanks to our sponsors, the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, Hey It's Jolly Entertainment, and the Fireside Mystery Theater. Find them all on iTunes or at their links in the written credits. A special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Haindages, two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. Ted's got a Facebook group, Radio Memories. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I've been visiting since 2000. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Breaking Walls, episode 104, will focus on Orson Welles' radio career from Pearl Harbor to the end of radio's peak. This episode will be available beginning June 1st, 2020, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Wallbreakers Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash the Wallbreakers. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon dot com slash the Wallbreakers. So until June 1st, and hopefully a less quarantine time, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 103, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. On Route 66 Get your kicks On Route 66 Get your kicks On Route 66 Get your kicks On Route 66